1 through 8. Follow along as uh, we read the Word of God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's uh, pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would uh, speak to us from your word. Uh, that your word would come with the power of the Holy Spirit, and that you would give me uh, the words to say. I pray that it would be uh, living and, and active in our midst, and that you and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the one triune God, uh, would be lifted up and glorified as we think about uh, the redemption that you have accomplished in the Son. We praise your name. Amen. I don't know uh, if you've ever done this, uh, but I'm sure that I did it or it was uh, done to me when I was growing up. Uh, But sometimes if you have an older sibling, and I was the oldest sibling, uh, the younger siblings will come along and and they will say something along the lines of, well, so-and-so was allowed to do it. Or so-and-so was allowed to get away with it. And the idea is the same rule that applied for the older one should also apply for the younger one. And sometimes our children have this uh, amazing ability to hold us extremely consistent to our words. Uh, Things that we forgot that we've said, uh, they remember. And things that we allowed one child to do, the next child will immediately remember. And sometimes even as a, as a parent, it's tough when you're trying to learn and change your ways and, and they pull it out to you and say, well, you allowed my older brother or sister to do these things. Sometimes that appeal to the past can have weight. We're in a passage of Scripture where Paul appeals to the past. Paul appeals to Abraham, their forefather, according to the faith, their older brother, if you will, the one who had experienced these blessings long before Jesus had come. And Paul appeals to Abraham to say, in effect, this is the way salvation has always been. What did our forefather, what did the first person who who hears the Word of God and receives the covenant, what did he get? And he got salvation by faith. And we have salvation by faith. And when I say the first person to hear it, I mean as the founder of the Israelite nation. And so what is every Israelite after that been saved by? What has every believer from the foundation of the working of God been saved by? They've been saved by faith. 
This morning, our simple point is our justification is by faith, not by works. And we've been talking about this and we've been going through uh, this section of Romans. And you'll remember, justification simply means to be declared righteous. It's that verdict that we have from God. And if you enjoy putting mental images in your head to define big words, think of just a courtroom scene and you get a verdict from the judge. And the verdict is not merely not guilty, but specifically a positive standing. You are declared Righteous. It's a declaration of salvation. It isn't the sum total of all the gifts that we have in salvation, but it is the key one. It is the, the linchpin, if you will. We are declared righteous by faith and not by works. So first this morning, we, even today as believers, we have the example of Abraham to show us justification by faith. Do you remember being a little child and singing the song uh, in Sunday school, perhaps, Father Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. Well, how is Abraham our father? Well, if you're Jewish, if you're from the line of Israel, as Paul was, he is your father quite literally in a genetic sense. But if you are a believer, he is your father in a spiritual sense. The same type of faith that Abraham had that he was justified by is the same type of faith that we have. And so we're, there's something profound in that Children's Sunday School song. We are children of Abraham. So Paul here takes up a hypothetical argument. Was Abraham justified by works? Look at verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So he's speaking here specifically to the Jewish people in his audience. Remember, the Roman church was was made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and Paul is also Jewish, and so this language of according to the flesh is Abraham is the physical father of the nation of Israel. He had many blessings from God. He had the covenant, and the covenant that we just read about today in Genesis 15. It's not that God wasn't saving people before Abraham. Of course, we have individuals like Noah and Enoch and others, but, but in the unfolding of the plan and purpose of God, the, the covenant with Abraham is another major turning point that we might understand what salvation is like and what God was going to do in the future for Abraham and those who had faith like him. So, Paul's question is, how did Abraham, in a sense, get what he got? What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? The Jews of Paul's days, Jewish people in Paul's days, tended to think of Abraham as having a relationship with God because of his own goodness. They saw Abraham as the guy who, who obeyed the law even before the law was given at Mount Sinai. Uh, that's kind of would be like the kid that comes into class and knows all the material before the teacher knows it. And don't you just want to, you know, like 
I probably was that kid in high school sometimes, but, but don't you just, the, the smugness some of those kids have, you know, like they know everything before the teacher even shares it, and they're, they're ready to take the test even before the material is given. Abraham, they thought, was the guy who kept the law before the law was given. He was the guy who passed the test before the material was even given to study. And so some of the sources we have that are not in Scripture, but, but are books that were being written or documents that we've discovered from the time, there's a, a document called the Document Jubilees. And they write this, For Abraham was perfect in all his actions with the Lord and was pleasing through righteousness all the days of his life. And it doesn't take you very long in reading in Genesis to realize Abraham had made some mistakes along the way, to put it mildly. Uh, ladies, how many of you would like if your husband took you out to dinner and uh, uh, a gentleman comes over and, and asks if you're seeing anyone and your husband goes, oh yeah, no, that's my sister. Uh, Abraham did that with his wife when he went down to Egypt. Uh, the king started hitting on, on Abraham's wife, if we can put it that way, wanted to know if she's single. And, and Abraham was intimidated and scared and figured this king is going to kill me and then marry her anyway. And so kind of to save his own skin, he just goes, well, you know, she's, she's my sister. Abraham was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, another one, uh, one of the rabbis from one of the Talmudic writings, uh, and we find that Abraham, our father, had performed the whole law before it was given because Abraham obeyed, by, uh, obeyed the voice and kept my charge by my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. First Maccabees uh, chapter 2, verse 20, 52. Again, not Scripture, but it reflects what was going on in Paul's day. They write this, Was not Abraham found faithful when tested, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So why was it reckoned to Abraham as righteousness? Because he had an act of faith? No, they would say, because he obeyed God. He kept the law. He was the righteous person in his behavior, and God credited it to him. And so we see, and the question arises for us, how are we? righteous before God. A secondary question is, did these individuals at the time of Paul understand Scripture correctly? I think you can see from the passage and even from reading Genesis 15, no, they did not. And so Paul is asking this hypothetical question because uh, people around him have asked it and have even said, well, of course Abraham was justified by works. So what does Paul go on and say? He, He asks the question, Did Abraham have anything to boast in? And we talked about boasting last week. And and one of the foundations of the Gospels, one of the, the effects of it, is we don't have anything to boast in. And neither did Abraham. For look at verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. If we really were saved by the good deeds that we do, we could pat ourselves on the back. We could boast before others. If Abraham was justified by works, he would be amazing. And he could boast about it. And we could boast and say, wow, look at how awesome Abraham was. He kept the law before it was given. He was perfectly righteous. But that's not what happened to Abraham. You'll remember chapter 3, verse 27 and, and 28. Uh, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. 
By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold uh, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So Paul reasons and says, we have no ability to boast. Why? Because we're saved by faith. And then he reasons and says, if Abraham was justified by works, Abraham can boast. And we need to remember that nobody who's saved, back to verse 27, no one has the ability to boast before God. And so I think that's what Paul means here when he says, but not before God. There are two possible ways to view this. One would be to say that Paul is saying in verse 2, Abraham is justified by works. If Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast, but he still wouldn't have boasted before God because that wouldn't have been very righteous on his part. So it could mean that, well, Paul could be saying if Abraham was justified by works, he'd only be able to boast before men. Or, Paul could be saying, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. And then this phrase, but not before God, shows us, yeah, he didn't have something to boast about. In other words, this, but not before God, negates the if clause. Like, we're supposed to know. Obviously, Abraham didn't have anything to boast in. And I think that's probably the best way uh, to take this clause. Paul is, is, is arguing hypothetically. Look, Abraham could have boasted. And then he stops the hypothetical argument and says, but you can't boast before God. You have nothing to boast before God. And it's, it's again this returning to the original argument. If you are saved by faith, you cannot boast in yourself. You cannot say, look at what I brought to the table. You cannot say, look at what I have done to receive or to get or to earn or to maintain or to have my salvation before God. You and I bring no acts of righteousness before God. We are sinners. We are sinners and we need grace. The point remains, Abraham did not boast and Abraham was not justified by works. One of the amazing things about the narratives of Scripture is just how awful even the heroes are. Even even the heroes, and there are guys in Scripture that, that, that rightly should be examples of faith and should be in that proper sense, a a hero, someone that we can look up to, we can learn from their example. But all of the heroes in Scripture, without fail, have some kind of thing that they did wrong in the biblical story. And, And you see the good and the bad in them. And so if we would ever be tempted to think, wow, these guys were really righteous on their own, you just go back and you read Scripture. Even David, a man after God's own heart. And and how many of us would love to be known as having that kind of godliness in in our practical Christian lives? But even David sinned. You think of Bathsheba. Then you think of what he did with Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And then you think of all the problems that led that led to with his, his son Absalom. Even David was marked by sin. 
And even the heroes in, in the Old Testament are to show us that we need Jesus. And they needed a Savior, a Messiah to come. So, even in our passage in verse 3, Paul quotes then the Old Testament concerning Abraham. For what does Scripture say? By the way, this is, this is just kind of as an aside, this is a, a good way to settle an argument. What does Scripture say? How many times have, have you been in conversations with people and they say, I think this and you think that, and okay, we'll just have to agree uh, to disagree. And, and don't be rude and don't be nasty or mean about it, but, but at the end of the day, the question is not what you think and not what I think, but what does Scripture say? We should be humble in our approach to Scripture. We should recognize that there's tough things in Scripture, sometimes things that we don't understand. But at the end of the day, the authority for each and every one of us is the Word of God. And so Paul doesn't care what the writers of Jubilees say. He doesn't care what the rabbis say. He doesn't care what the book of Maccabees says. He says, for what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, it's pretty cool that in the timing and planning of, of God's purposes, uh, we got to Genesis 15 today, uh, the same day we're preaching through Romans 4. I did uh, skip Genesis 14 because it's the battle scene with um, uh, and Melchizedek and some of those. So I skipped chapter 14 because I thought, well, but, but we were close, so that, that counts. But, but we've been reading through Genesis, and we've been seeing the faith of Abraham, and now we're, we're in the New Testament passage, and right here you see the point. Abraham believed God. And how did Abraham believe God? Abraham was an old man. Uh, I was trying to track down the age. So in chapter 12, he's 75. In chapters 16, 16, he's referenced as 86 when Hagar, Hagar had a son. So he's probably in his early 80s here in, in Genesis 15. And he doesn't have any children. His only heir is Eleazar. And the Lord said, um, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look to the heavens and, and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then shall your offspring be. And he believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Thelma told me this morning, she's almost 88 and she's going to live to be 106. Uh, so she's about the age here of Abraham, a little older than Abraham here in this story. And, and could you imagine Thelma chasing a toddler around, uh, having a little baby? I mean, can you just imagine Abraham at, at this age? And, and God's word saying to him, the word of God, you are going to have an heir? Okay. I mean, I mean, this is an act of faith. He has to trust God. He has to believe that God is going to do this. And you know how the story develops into chapter 16. Uh, Sarah uh, kind of finds a workaround and she says, well, why don't you just have a child uh, with my mistress? And that, that isn't God's plan. And God has to come back and say, no, 
Abraham and you, Sarah, will have a child. And we always, we always make fun of Sarah. We always, you know, uh, rib her a little bit for, for laughing. Uh, actually, it's interesting that the chapter before, when God tells this to Abraham, it's in chapter 17, Abraham laughs the first time around too. Uh, so don't be too harsh on Sarah, because Abraham did it too the first time uh, around. And, and why? Because this, but humanly speaking, this was impossible. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 14, In hope he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should be the father of many nations. As it had been told to him, so shall your offspring be. And, and if you've ever gone out on the, the starry night, you know, where there's, I was in Minnesota one time and away from all the radiant light of the cities, and we went out in a field, and man, the stars are gorgeous. I mean, they just multiply. And can you imagine Abraham looking up and there's no you know, city lights nearby blocking the, the light and seeing all these stars and, and God saying, your offspring, your descendants will be this many and more? And he's that age with no kids? Paul says he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. God granted Abraham righteousness because Abraham trusted the Word of God. That God can do the impossible. That God can save. That God keeps His promises. And what could Abraham at his age with his body, as Paul says, as good as dead, what could Abraham contribute to the salvation of the world? What could he do to make it happen? In effect, nothing. Because God had to bring his aged body back to life and Sarah's womb back to life. And all Abraham did in response to God was believe the promise. What do we do to get saved? Do we offer anything? Do we come to the table and say, here are my good works. Here's what I'm contributing to this project, my salvation. All we come with is our empty, sinful selves. And we believe the promise that if you trust in Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. That God justifies the ungodly. What is saving faith? Saving faith is a faith like Abraham. We are sinners. We are dead in our sins. We have no good works. And God says to us, believe in me and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look at that and we say, that, that seems too easy. Don't I have to, to do something? Don't I have to contribute in some way? Now, good works should be the outflowing of your salvation. The product of once God has worked in you and given you this justification. But you and I don't do anything. We don't do any works to save ourselves. We trust God. 
we trust specifically the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Faith is an act of trusting the promises of God and the work of Jesus Christ. Saving faith abandons self-sufficiency. This, I can do this on my own. I can fix this. I can make this better. Even this idea of all I need is a little help from God and then I will get to heaven. Faith abandons that. Justification comes through faith. There is no principle of works or anything that I contribute to my salvation. I must stop trying to work for it, to achieve it, to think that I can somehow live up to what God has done on Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, to think that I can somehow, in my ongoing good works, appropriate it and get more salvation. And somehow I combine my works with what God has already done. No. I trust. And God gives. This is what Abraham did. Our forefather, according to the faith. This is what we need to do. That we are justified. That we are declared righteous. By faith alone. Apart from any good works. And we're created in the image of Christ Jesus to then go on and do good works. But we are justified, saved, declared righteous apart from those things that we do. And so, second, this morning we receive justification by faith and not by works. Here's a simple principle. If I work, I am owed a paycheck. A paycheck is not a gift. How many of you have ever gone to your boss and, and thanked him for your paycheck because it was a gift? Are you, no, you say, I, I earned this. And, and if you work ten hours and he only pays you for nine, you better believe you go back to him and say, hey, you, you owe me this. If, I've earned, if I work for my salvation, it is not a gift of God's grace. It's something that he owes me. And so just the very nature of the word grace shows us that it's not something that we've achieved. Look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. I think in a sense you, you cannot get more basic than this. If it's something that I did, then God owed it to me. And if God owed it to me, it wasn't a gift of His grace. Now, now some of you maybe are um, like me and you're snarky. And when someone says something like that, your mind starts turning and you say, well, you know, maybe the employer was really gracious by, by giving uh, more of an hourly salary than the person deserved. But, but the idea is, you know, if you, if you enter into a business relationship with someone, you know, they set the price and then you do your part of the, the, the bargain, so to speak. And even if they offer to pay you maybe more than, than it's worth, you still have made a bargain. And once you do the work, they owe you that. Once you sign the contract, they can't uh, renege on that. And the idea is we know salvation is not by works because it's by grace. And if it was by works, God would owe us something. 
I would have something to, to go before God and boast. Did you ever, you know, you ever go into a store and they have that first dollar that they earned up there? You know, that, that, they're proud of that. Do you ever, how, how were you when you got like your first paycheck as a kid? Do you remember the first time you had a job? And, and, and I remember mowing lawns and, and I remember being really proud that I had money in my pocket. I could buy comic books and CDs. I had money. I was proud. I had a job. My employers owed me this. I had something to boast in. You can't boast in yourself when it comes to grace. In salvation, we do not work. We simply believe God. Look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And you can see the parallels here to, to chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The same uh, idea here, justified by faith, is found in uh, his faith is counted as righteousness. That word counted, you see it here a number of times in the passage. It's, it's a legal term. It's an accounting term. You, you transfer something onto someone's account. And so God takes faith and God, the faith trusts in Christ and God transfers onto our account the gift of righteousness. God takes the ungodly person and they are still ungodly and he declares them righteous. And so we'll see in a minute Christ takes my sin and pays for it and I get the righteousness that Christ had. This counted as righteous is a verdict then that is rendered. Not because the person has righteousness or good works or done something, but what? Because they trusted that this is God and His Word. They trust God and they say, okay God, I am a sinner and I see that you justify the ungodly and I desire salvation and please Jesus, forgive me of my sins and give me salvation. And it's not anything we've done, it's not anything we've earned, but we freely then in those moments receive it. We believe that God justifies the ungodly. In a sense, the verdict is, is contrary to the way things are. I am a sinner. And yet God declares me ungodly. As I'm ungodly, He declares me righteous. We've talked about this two weeks ago. How does that not make God unjust? The Scriptures warn judges, don't give verdicts that are contrary to the fact. He can do this. Jesus or God can give this verdict because Jesus died on the cross. Go back to chapter 3, verses 25 to 26. God put forward, this is speaking of Jesus, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show the righteousness of God because of his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
God maintains his standard of justice in that he judges sin on the cross in Jesus. And then he declares us righteous because we receive a gift from Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin in, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How did God make Jesus a sinner? Did Jesus ever sin? No, absolutely not. Did Jesus ever have any corruption in his heart? God forbid, no way, absolutely not. Jesus was always perfect. So what does it mean that God made him who knew no sin to be sin? It means God took the verdict of my sin and prosecuted it on Jesus. There was a a legal transaction. Jesus never became a sinner. He was never corrupted or stained by sin. But He knew sin in the sense that the guilt of my sin was placed upon Him. It's a transfer. In the same way, the passage says, so that in Him, so that in Christ, as we have union with Him and a relationship with Him, in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Do I ever in this life become perfectly righteous and qualified in my own heart to stand before God? Am I ever good enough in this life? No. I'm always tainted by sin. But what do I have? In the same way that the verdict of my sin is transferred onto Jesus, the verdict of His righteousness, who was righteous in His character, that verdict is transferred over me. So that Paul can write this great mystery of the Gospel. God justifies the ungodly. Do you understand that? That even as believers, we are still sinners. That even as believers, you know, yeah, we, we, we grow in the fruits of the Spirit, right? And, and, and praise God when He works those things in our life. But you and I know we still struggle with sin. You and I know that we, we are never perfect. Our, our righteousness in, in terms of our behavior is at best filthy rags. So that even, even when we do a, a good deed as a Christian... God, God's glad with that, just like a, a father is, is glad when a child obeys him. It, that's a good thing. But it never is the, the perfection of holiness that could stand before God on its own. I'm ungodly. But I have all the sufficient righteousness that I need to stand before God. I have the complete verdict already without ever having any Christian growth or sanctification or behavior in my life, I have the verdict of righteousness. Now God will work out that salvation and God will change our character over time. 
but I have it. And I am ungodly, but it has been given to me. Why? Because it was not by works. It was not by things that I did. It was not by good behavior that I had later on as a Christian. It's not true that, well, if we were to get to heaven and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? Now, that won't happen. We'll go right into the presence of God. But, but bear with me here. We often ask people, you know, why should God let you into heaven? If, if we were to die and go to heaven and, and God said, why should I let you into heaven? The answer would not be our good works. The answer would not even be our good works as a Christian. And I would submit to you, the answer wouldn't even be, I believed. The answer would be, Christ died for me and has given me His righteousness. I received it through faith, but I don't hold up my faith as the treasure to say, God, let me into heaven because of this. I hold up Christ and say, look at His righteousness. It has covered me. It has forgiven me. I am washed clean. Do you know the blessing of this forgiveness? I mean, is it, is it a joy to you? The, the, the language of justification, and, and sometimes we, you know, we get bogged down in, okay, here's Pastor again, he's using these really big words. But, but, but this matters. This is what God has done. And it, and it brings to us this wonderful blessing of my sins are forgiven. Paul will say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, that he is found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's a righteousness that God gave to me because of the work of Christ, not because of me keeping the law or obeying God or doing good things. And what a blessing. It is to have this gift. And this is really where the passage ends. The third thing this morning, our blessing is justification. Uh, our blessing in justification by faith is that our sins are truly forgiven. The moment you get saved, you are justified in Christ. It's, it's not a, a verdict that, that ebbs and flows. It's not something that sometimes you have more of a righteousness from Christ and sometimes you have less of. You always, as a believer in Christ, have the righteousness of Christ. The verdict of the judgment, the final judgment, has now been declared upon you already. And that's not going to change. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. For those of us who have been justified in Christ, we have what, Paul says? Peace. Peace with God. God has no more wrath to pour out on you. Christ has taken that wrath. This is motivation to follow God more. This is motivation to walk in His ways. This is not something that we take and say, well, I can never mess up, so I'm just going to live however I want. This is to say, look at what God has done. 
Oh, how I delight to draw close to Him. To walk in His ways. Because I know I can't walk in His ways. Because I know I would have never gotten salvation if it was up to me to walk in His ways. This is the God that I want to know. The God who saved me. Our blessing and justification by faith is that our sins are truly forgiven. It is a blessing to be counted as righteousness from from work. So again, Paul appeals to Scripture, verse 6, just as David also speaks, the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So it's, it's fascinating here that, that the verses that Paul will quote don't mention justification by faith, but Paul actually says this is the blessing. This is what is awesome about having a righteousness apart from works. This is amazing. Look at what we get. And by the way, we should also think the opposite. That if it was up to works, these are the things that I would not have. But these are the blessings. Look at verse 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. And that count language is the same thing we've seen about being reckoned to righteousness. That God won't reckon to us. That God won't prosecute upon us the verdict that our sins deserve, the punishment that our sins deserve. He withholds the judgment because He has placed it on Christ and He has placed upon us a righteousness that comes from Christ. Lawless deeds that should be punished now are forgiven. There is no punishment, no condemnation. The stain of guilt is cleansed. The the sins are covered. They are blotted out. They are removed. God does not render to us the verdict that we deserve. But in justification, the guilt of sin is taken away. Our sins are removed and covered by the blood of Christ. Christ has effectively paid for sins because God set forth Christ as the propitiation. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, your sins are taken and you receive the righteousness of Christ It's fascinating what David says a little later on in the psalm that Paul quotes. He says this, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by heat in the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave me my iniquity. You want your sins covered Don't cover them before God. Don't think that you can hide them. David opens his heart, if you will, opens his life and says, this is who I am. I am a sinner. I can't hide that from you, God. I won't cover it up anymore. Give to me that forgiveness that you offer. So often we think that we can change our life. So often we think that we can cover up our sins and and hide them away and it won't really be that bad and, and God won't look there in the corner where I've tucked them away and hidden them. 
You want forgiveness? You want removal? Maybe you're even struggling with a sin or guilt of a sin in your Christian life. You want that relieved? Open it up to God. Be honest with Him. In a sense, expose yourself. I really did this, God. It really is bad. I have nothing that I should be standing here for and be pleased about. Forgive it. Wash it away. It almost sounds too simple. Well, don't I have to do something? How can God do that again? I think of all the times He's forgiven me. God, doesn't God get upset with forgiving me? Doesn't He think, oh, well, I, I should know better by now? No. Because God is slow to anger and abounding in mercy and love. As you think this morning, what do I contribute to my salvation? Nothing. What do I do to achieve it? Nothing. What do I have to boast in before God? Only God and only the righteousness of Christ. We started our service this morning with a call to worship. I don't know if you noticed this, but it came from Psalm 32. It came from the psalm that Paul quotes in this passage. And David ends in this way. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Why can you rejoice, O righteous one? Because you are righteous in Christ. Why can you and I shout? And, and maybe we should shout sometimes. You know, most of us, I grew up Pennsylvania Dutch and, you know, strict German background. You don't shout too much. But David did because he rejoiced in what God had done. Christ took my sins and bore the guilt. God gave me the righteousness of Christ, even though I, in my heart, am ungodly. The great thing about it is God also gives the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit does bring transformation and all of those wonderful benefits come with it. But at the core, the righteousness that I have to stand before God and be led into heaven is not my own righteousness. And it's not something that I brought to myself through my good works. It's something that I simply appealed to God and said, I've got nothing. Save me. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would uh, work in our hearts today, work in our lives, that you would bless us through your word, remind us of this wonderful joy of the blessing of justification by faith alone, that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, transferred to us, counted to us, even though we don't have it in and of ourselves. And so, Lord Jesus, we are wholly dependent upon you. And as we take communion now, as we partake of these elements which symbolize the, the death and, and broken, shed blood and broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ, remind us of the costliness of our sin. But remind us that our sins have been forgiven. And when there is forgiveness of sin, there is no more judgment that awaits us that you have truly washed us 
and cleansed us and made us a new people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to come now this morning and we're going to take uh, communion. Communion is uh, what we call sometimes the Lord's